seeing the, uh, seeing the play. For those of you that are listening or watching via the internet, we do welcome you this morning with our congregation. Turn with me, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, there are pew Bibles in your pews. We want you to follow along. It is important that you be able to read uh, what I'm reading, and that's on page 1014. Now, the version in the pew is the ESV, and I preach from the New King James, mainly because I haven't worn out my Bible now after 25 years. But uh, please bear that in mind if you would. So, we have been looking at hope through the gospel, and it covers the first 12 verses of chapter 1. And so this morning, and we won't complete verses 10, 11, and 12 today, and I know that's no surprise to you. Uh, but it, it, uh, Peter closes out this section focusing on our hope through diligence to, that should be the word, not the world, but may, and maybe I... Maybe I wrote it wrong, but <laughs> and Jeff's doing a good job making all of that. So diligence to the word, and this is the first passage in First and Second Peter that uh, Peter addresses the uh, inspiration of the word of God, and he does it a number of times through First and Second Peter. We're going to look at a, we're going to read them this morning, but obviously focus on verses ten through. We find these words. Actually, read verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of the salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. May God bless the reading of his holy word in our hearing today. Let's go to his throne of grace in prayer. Father, what we have not, give us today. What we know not, teach us. And because we are not like Christ, we pray that you would make us like Christ. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. First slide, brother, if, we, if you would. <clears throat> now, Peter's writing as an old man. He is perhaps just months from his death. He would be crucified essentially upside down, he and his wife both. His wife was with him during this time, as was Mark um, and others that uh, traveled with him. Paul would have one uh, entourage, if you please, and Peter had another one. Uh, we think that about this time, both of them were, or briefly anyway, both of them, Peter and Paul, were in Rome. Peter is writing to a dispersed group of believers, primarily Jews, but many Gentiles that had been converted. We sang quite a bit about grace this morning, and he talks about grace in these verses. So when we give diligence to the Word of God, we understand and we begin to understand the work of grace in his salvation. Now remember, as a young man, Peter spent about three and a half years with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
he had uh, he had heard his sermons. He had seen his miracles. He witnessed much of his life. We know, of course, that he betrayed him. It is thought that, we don't know for a fact, so it's just conjecture, but it's thought that perhaps he watched the crucifixion from afar across the, the uh, Kidron Brook. And he was the first disciple to stoop down and go into the empty tomb. So Peter could have relied a great deal on his uh, experience, on his wisdom, on his conviction. But he didn't. Our experiences in life, though they are important, do not trump the Word of God. And we learn that from both Paul and here Peter. He doesn't cite his wisdom, his earthly experience, his knowledge, or his authority. In fact, in verse 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He certainly could have written Peter, the the disciple that was the leader of the disciples, but he doesn't say that. He leans completely on his Savior. In verse 9, we read just a portion of it, but verse 9 concludes one of the longest sentences in the Greek New Testament. It actually begins all the way back in verse 3 of chapter 1 and runs through verse 9. Now, there's some punctuation here in the English, but that's only for clarification. In the Greek language, there, there isn't any punctuation. It just flows. It's a beautiful doxology opening to what Jesus has done for us. Now, when he reaches verse 9, the closure at verse 9, he could have moved right into the next section, which we will in a couple of weeks, which has to do with holiness in the gospel. There's hope in the gospel, and there's holiness in the gospel. If there's hope, then the work of the Spirit of God, he talks about that here, moves us to sanctification, to growing to be like Jesus Christ. Peter had grown to be much like his Savior. None of us obviously mature to that point in time. So he could have, but he doesn't. Next slide. Peter pauses to interject to us the role of Scripture in their salvation and our own, those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ, in our own salvation. Look across the page, verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. That's sanctification. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed. Now, he uses the word corruption and corruptible a number of times in chapter 1. And this is the the last time that he uses them. He has used them previously in verses 3 through 6. So he says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever because, and then he quotes, From the book of Isaiah, all flesh is as grass, 
And all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flowers fall away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now we stop there quite often, but Peter has something else to add to verse 25. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. So he could certainly have jumped over verses 10 through 12 or perhaps just ignore the work of the Spirit of God, but he doesn't. In fact, Peter, an apostle, there were approximately 40 or so apostles. Uh, and an, an apostle had to be uh, one that had been a disciple of Christ and had seen the resurrected Christ. So there are no apostles today, regardless of what many denominations say, none. We've not seen the resurrected Christ. In fact, he says there in verse 8, whom having not seen you love. So Peter was in rare company along with Paul and John and James and others. His authority comes from the word that is authored by the Holy Spirit. And just to interject, since we're talking about interjecting the word here, notice what he says uh, in verse 12, which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. That's me. That's every preacher that has preached the gospel over the past 2,000 years. Not just the New Testament apostles, which we'll talk about, but it's every man that has stood behind the sacred desk to break the word of God and present the gospel. We are reporting what the Old Testament prophets foresaw and what the New Testament apostles witnessed. That's why he mentions what he does in the latter part of verse 25. This is the word which is by the gospel was preached to you. So every Sunday school teacher that breaks the gospel, every preacher that breaks the gospel, evangelist, whatever, is in verse 12. Now Peter wants his readers, and he wants you and I. Sometimes we want to divorce ourselves and say, well, he was writing to Peter. We're far more intelligent. We're far more evolved mentally, educationally, fill in the blank, than these people were. Well, I would take homage to that. I would take uh, uh, an advantage of that because these folks were every bit as intelligent. They may not have had the education. We're going to talk about knowledge here in just a moment, or the knowledge. But they were certainly head and shoulders above us and wisdom and the application of the knowledge that they had. So Peter wants his readers and you and I to inquire into the Old Testament of New Testament truths. We're going to see some of those this morning. I would challenge you this morning as a child of God if you are not reading or studying the Old Testament, that's a sin. It is from the Old Testament 
that provides to us the highway into the revelation contained in the New Testament. So I challenge you, read the Old Testament. Study the Old Testament. So he wants his readers and you and I to spend time in the Old Testament so that when we move to the New Testament, now he talks about Old Testament prophets, The Old Testament prophets didn't have the Gospels. They didn't have the book of Acts. They did not have the epistles, and they did not have the book of Revelation. But they were saved nonetheless. So spend some time there. And so Peter asked this question, or we could ask this question ourselves. What makes our salvation great? What makes it wonderful? What completes it for us? We certainly could say that salvation is great, because of our great God who designed it before the universe's foundation was laid. We're told that a number of times in the Bible. Not just New Testament, but Old Testament. (laughs) Jehovah asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Or is our salvation great because of who purchased it? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer to that is yes. It is great because of that. Or is our salvation great because of the transformation and the dramatic alteration that comes into believers' lives when they are born again? And the answer to that is yes. But that's not all. And that's why Peter writes verses 10 through 12. Next slide, if you would. All these things are true. God is great. We're saved by the wonderful work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're transformed by the Spirit of God. All these things are true. But what Peter wants us to see is what the Holy Spirit is focusing on in these verses. And the Holy Spirit is not focusing on how great our salvation is personally, as great as it is. What the Holy Spirit focuses on now, in fact, from now until the end of chapter 1, he is examining salvation through the human agents who wrote about it. Old Testament prophets, moved upon by the Spirit of Christ, delivered the word to the New Testament apostles and current day preachers to bring to the world the saving work of Jesus Christ through the Word of God, being born again, not of corruptible seed. So there are four things at work here, four agents of the Trinity in these verses, 10, 11, and 12. We talked about the prophets. The Spirit of God is mentioned here, Holy Spirit. And Of course, the Holy Spirit is the agent of the Trinity that authored the Scriptures. And we'll examine that uh, more thoroughly as we move through these verses in the latter part of chapter 1. The New Testament apostles, to us, he says, and as I mentioned, preachers. And then angels. Vance and I have uh, devotions and... um, a meeting 
just about every Friday morning. And so I mentioned to him before, obviously, we finish, we have prayer. And I mentioned to him before we closed out this past Friday morning. I said, brother, Peter's going to talk about angels. He's just briefly here. <clears throat> he does mention them later on. And we'll, uh, in chapter 3, we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 3. And he and I began to talk. I've been in the ministry, some type of ministry, almost 50 years. And of all the questions that I have received in 50 years of ministry, and I, I can't count them all. I received more questions about angels than any other subject. So when we get to the latter part of verse 12, we're going to take some time to address the teaching of angels in the Bible. Angels are subservient to the Trinity. And right now, they have a place that is slightly above humanity only because of our sin. The intent of the creation of Adam and Eve was so that God would have fellowship with a created being. Now, last week we talked about uh, impassibility. You remember that? Emotion. God's not emotional. He doesn't need to have fellowship. He has fellowship within himself. But because of his goodness, he created Adam and Eve in order that that fellowship may continue with morally free agents. Now, unfortunately, because we were, Adam and Eve were morally free agents, they did the morally free thing. They sinned. And we'll talk about angels not having that capacity when we come to it. But I want you, if you're listening, say amen. amen. Angels are not to be worshipped. They are not to be exalted. They are created beings that are messengers of the triune God. And we'll go into more detail when we get there. As Baptists... We certainly should understand that. So these four agents, one of them being the agent of the Trinity itself, himself, and the Holy Spirit. And so the Trinity, primarily the Holy Spirit, uses these created agents, Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles and preachers, and angels occasionally, mainly in the Old Testament, to define to us what he wants us to know about redemption. Now, why does the Spirit of God do this? Each of these agents, Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, and preachers, and angels, have knowledge of certain things that others don't. Old Testament prophets would have knowledge that New Testament apostles would not have. New Testament would have knowledge that Old Testament apostles, uh, the, uh, prophets would have. Angels, probably superior knowledge, or at least to a certain extent. 
Next slide. None of these agents have complete knowledge. Angels don't. Obviously, human beings don't. We gain, and sometimes we lose knowledge. All God's people said? All God's people said? You lose knowledge. I lose knowledge. I'm an old guy, and you'll find out the older you get, the more knowledge you lose. Maybe you misplace it. I'm going to say lose it. I just misplaced the knowledge, okay? Now, our knowledge is dynamic, which means that we, we learn in real time. And then if, if, the, if the gray matter is working correctly, we shuffle it back into that gray matter for reasons of recall if we need to recall it. Some people's recall is quite a bit better than others. But it's always limited. There are some extremely smart people on the face of the earth, but their knowledge is limited. Angels contain superior knowledge to you and I. But they have this knowledge of certain things. They are limited in their knowledge of salvation. That's why Peter says the things which angels desire to look into. And we'll broach that subject. Some beautiful words that we find here in the latter part of verse 12. Now, in these verses, God has expressed himself to these three by the Spirit of God. We looked at verses 11 and 12. And this God does because he is omniscient. Now, last week we talked about impassibility, one of the attributes of God. This morning I'll just briefly talk about omniscience because we talk about God being omniscient. What does omniscience mean, by the way? What is it? All science is the word, omni-science. What does it mean? Hmm? It's just not a trick question. All right? He has all knowledge. Which means that knowledge that's superior to the prophets, to the apostles, to the angels. To you and to I. Our knowledge of God from the scripture, and that's really the only place that we can, we can uh, glean the knowledge of God is from the scripture because through this omniscience, he reveals himself. He doesn't reveal all he knows. He reveals what we need to know. So God does, we call this omniscience. We don't possess it now and we're not going to possess it in the future. Well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to know everything God knows. No, you're not. Because then you would be God. You're not. Now, you won't forget anything that you learn. But since God is complete and perfect knowledge, he alone retains that attribute. Malachi 3 and verse 6, the prophet wrote, 
For I, the Lord, do not change. It's one of the things we learn about God. God doesn't change. The immutability of God. God does not change. Another great theological term. We do. We change often. We change as often as we change underwear sometimes. And many times when we change, it's not for the better. Because our knowledge is limited. A.W. Tozer, many years ago, wrote this. To say that God is omniscient is to say that he possesses perfect knowledge. You and I don't. We don't have perfect knowledge of anything. I've studied the scriptures for, I've been, I've been a believer for a Lord of mercy, long time, 60 some years. And I've had the, the privilege, the great and marvelous privilege to study the scriptures for most of those years. But I don't have perfect knowledge of the Bible. To say that God is omniscient is to say that he possesses perfect knowledge and therefore has no need to learn. But it is more. It is to say that God has never learned and that he cannot learn. There are a few things God cannot do. He cannot sin and he cannot learn. If he could, he wouldn't be God. So in this omniscience, he reveals himself. Next slide. Now, God's knowledge is not a matter of sheer volume. Oh, he's got a big old brain. Well, the Bible tells us, Jesus told, tells us that God is spirit. So we have a brain. How that manifests itself in the Godhead, the Bible doesn't tell us. And God doesn't reveal that because we don't need to know it. So we can worry about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen, what size God's brain is, all these things that are immaterial to our salvation. God does not add to his knowledge. And again, if he did, he would not be God. Now, the Library of Congress, I don't know if any of you have ever been there, is right behind the uh, uh, Congressional Building, the Capitol Building. And the Library of Congress contains 170 million volumes and items from around the world, not just from the United States. The overwhelming majority are from the United States, but 170 million. It is twice as large as the next largest library, which is in London. It's the Library of the United Kingdom. I find it amazing. I've been in it. It's, it's a remarkable, remarkable building. If you've never had an opportunity to, to tour it, uh, take... Uh, Take advantage to do that. I also find it remarkable that it sits right directly behind the Capitol, and I'm not sure anybody in the Capitol uses it. I think that's well on display 
But God's knowledge is not based on sheer volume. He has more volumes than the Library of Congress. Doesn't matter, immaterial. Augustine said, God does not know all creatures because they exist. All creatures exist because he knows them. And man, what a difference. Herman Bavink, a Dutch theologian, said that he knows all things instantaneously, simultaneously, from eternity. All things are eternally present in his mind's eye. Again, we don't know about God's mind. We don't know about God's eyes. We know he sees about all the earth. But he's spirit. And these quotes, whether it be Tozer, Augustine, or Babink, these quotes are humans with frailties. These are some very smart men. Augustine in particular, that have tried to define the omniscience of God. Now, God's knowledge of us is perfect. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what I'm thinking right now. Sometimes preachers look in a congregation, they see one of you, and they're thinking, I wonder if that person, he or she, is listening. You didn't think that, did you? We have to be thinking, too, most of us. To preach. God's knowledge of us is perfect. In fact, it's better than the knowledge we have of ourselves. Socrates and Aristotle, a student of Socrates, came up with the little phrase, know thyself. But we don't. We come to areas within our life that challenge us and we typically push those to the side. We don't know ourselves. We limit the knowledge of self because we're sinners. And God, obviously, who doesn't sin, doesn't limit his knowledge of us. Now, that's a good thing, that he knows us better than ourselves, because through that, he knows us and loves us still. So that's part of the reach of the omniscience of God. Next slide. Not only does God know us perfectly, but he knows himself perfectly. That's part of the perfections of God. We don't. Again, without this book, we come up with conjecture or we say silly things like love is God, and that's not what the Scripture says. God is love, not love is God. And all sorts of misunderstandings and misinterpretations and applications from the Word. If God didn't know himself, then the revelation that he made to the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles from the prophets in the Old Testament and the preachers would be lacking. And it isn't. It's complete and thorough. This is what God has given us in order to bring us to a point to understand we're sinners in need of salvation. That's why Peter writes this. Now, Jesus 
And Matthew 11 said this. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Now, he was teaching this to his disciples. Hey, guys, you think you know me, but guess what? You don't. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Old Testament prophets... Just because they wanted to know about redemption, just because anyone wants to know about redemption, does not mean that God is going to empower them to learn. It comes through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. We make that mistake quite often. Jesus himself said, the one to whom the Son reveals him. I think y'all y'all were studying the feeding of the five thousand this morning. Is that that right? It's one of the few miracles that are found in all four gospels. You imagine the number of people that Jesus came in contact with during his lifetime. Thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands. When he went to the cross, he had one disciple go with him. His mother and Mary Magdalene, a couple of the other women, went with Jesus' mother. One. The scripture says, Paul would write, 1 Corinthians, that after his resurrection, he was seen by about 500 brethren at one time. And when he ascended back into heaven, there were 120 in the upper room. So, yes, there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands that wanted to see Jesus. But he said, I'm only going to reveal myself by my will. You would think, you know, why don't people flock to Jesus today? The very same reason they didn't 2,000 years ago. So Peter here is writing about the ministry of the Holy Spirit through these individuals. Now, the Spirit of God chooses to reveal himself through Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul said, but it is as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those that love him. Now, we think that means heaven, and that is an application, but it's not the interpretation. Remember, context is king. It's always king. We want to lift Scripture out of context because we like what it says, and that says heaven is a place that we can't understand. And obviously it is, but that's not what Paul is writing about. He identifies it with the next phrase. These things God has revealed through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. It plumbs the depths of God. What a remarkable verse to teach us about what God is doing in and through the Word of God. Because of God's omniscience, 
Now, that's a, sort of a long introduction, but I want you to, if you're listening, say amen. amen. I want you to glean this. Because of God's omniscience, Peter can base his authority in the Spirit of God as the Spirit of God reveals to him Christ's revelation of our great salvation found in the Old Testament and found in the New Testament. Because of God's omniscience. God's not omniscient. Then the Word, again, is immaterial. Next slide. So he writes about the character of Scripture in these verses. Give you these five this morning. We'll stop right there because I, to, to go any further is going to bring us into another theater of discussion. Verse 10, what does it say? Of this salvation, specific salvation, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Salvation is the great theme of Scripture. It's not Israel, not the church, although they're bound under salvation. We'll start to learn that this evening as we look at the book of Exodus. When Adam and Eve fell, God moved in the garden and began to ask, where are you, Adam? Not that he didn't know, but so that Adam would identify himself. From the fall in Genesis 3 to the consummation of the age in Revelation 22, the authors of Scripture, all 40 of them, have been leaning over. In fact, that's part of what he's talking about in the latter part of verse 12. They have been looking through their lowered glasses to see and to be able to flesh out how God saves. Now, the Bible is a great moral book, but that's not its theme. The theme is salvation. And Peter says, of this salvation, prophets inquired and searched diligently. Secondly, God appointed, he chose Old Testament prophets. There were some in the Old Testament that wanted to be prophets. Balaam was one. God said no. God chose the prophets. He chose the New Testament apostles. He anoints today and chooses men of God to be pastors and to preach, to record, to proclaim the scriptures. Now the Lord could have chosen anything he wanted to, but he chose human vessels. He chose prophets. He chose preachers. Thirdly, salvation is the great theme but grace is the great display of God's goodness toward lost sinners. He says in the latter part of verse 10 that we prophesied of the grace that would come to you. And we'll begin to examine that more completely in a week or so. In verse 11, he says, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. 
Scripture comes through the inspiration, the breathing out, the exhaling of God. And so the Spirit of Christ was in them. Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles. And when a man of God stands behind the pulpit to deliver the word, whether it's teaching or preaching or whatever, the Spirit of Christ is in us. Now we as Baptists don't subscribe to what the Catholics call ex cathedra. That's when the Pope sits on the throne of Peter in, uh, in St. Peter's, St. Peter's Basilica, that he is given a special anointing of the Spirit of God. And so when he speaks, he speaks infallibly. That's nowhere found in Scripture. And fifthly, Scripture stresses the content of God's work and Christ's message. He testified the Spirit of Christ. How did he do it? To the Old Testament prophets. He testified beforehand of the sufferings and the glory that should follow. One more slide. While we're looking at that, go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Therefore the prophets foretold this salvation. Jesus accomplished the salvation, and the Holy Spirit led Peter and the apostles to explain this salvation. Why are the epistles necessary? They explain to us how great and wonderful our salvation is. The Old Testament prophets predicted salvation. Now, they didn't understand all of it. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. The Lord Jesus Christ executed our salvation. And the New Testament apostles and preachers interpret salvation. Now, the Old Testament prophets were not privy to any complete panorama of salvation. You and I have the ability to look back in time and use the Word of God to determine how God worked, but the Old Testament prophets did not. They were faithful to what the Spirit of God revealed to them. And the story of redemption was revealed gradually. How do we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Gradually, week in, week out, in God's house, faithful to His Word, faithful to His people, faithful to Himself. These two gracious children that were baptized this morning. If the Lord tarries, we hope and pray that they live long, industrious, Christian lives. But they will grow in grace gradually. There's effort required. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, and this Peter would have heard. So he heard this, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, Peter, James, and John. All the disciples didn't hear it. 
Peter, James, and John heard it. We heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. That means that you and I cannot take scripture out of context to make it say what we want to, that there is a understanding for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. There's hope in the gospel when we give diligence to the word of God. And we'll move more completely through this in a week or so, next Sunday being Mother's Day. But be reminded of this. The Word of God is thorough in the omniscience of God. God uses the Word and His perfect knowledge of us to convict us where we need to be convicted. And God uses the Word and His perfect knowledge of Himself to call men and women, boys and girls, to himself and born them again into God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for uh, the, the magnitude of redemption and salvation, the prediction of it, the execution of it, and the interpretation of it. May we never forget that there's hope in the gospel because of our diligence given to the word of God. Have your sweet will, your divine way in the remainder of the service this morning. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. <clears throat> the invitation is very, very simple this morning. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord as Savior, we can't save you, but with an open Bible, we can lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Very, very clear. Faith is gifted to us as God reveals Himself through the Word. We're going to sing one verse of a hymn that the Lord's spoken to you as we give you opportunity. You can make your way out of the pew. And again, we can lead you, take you to a private room and there lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. We had opportunity to baptize these two um, uh, young folk this morning. And we offer that to you as well. If you know the Lord as Savior, you need to be obedient and follow him in believer's baptism. That's part of the Great Commission. As a child of God, we must always return back to the Word of God. What number, Brother Mike? 311. 311. If the Lord's spoken, won't you come as we stand and sing? <clears throat> 